Uh, it's sort of a sentimental time. Some of you know, I've, because I've shared this before, if you're a ten- attender here at Calvary, that uh, Easter is kind of a spiritual birthday for me because it was on an Easter Sunday night that I really, in sincerity, began walking with the Lord. You know, there are those times where you call yourself a Christian or you commit to something on an intellectual level. Uh, but it was during that time that uh, all these events and these thoughts leading up to this day and it just kind of the way God brought about this perfect storm in, in my life. One of the things that led up to that, and I'll mention this some, some during, during the message today, that was just, I couldn't get past so many of the, you know, there are things I could work, work through with my Christian friends and some of the things they would tell me or share and we would talk about and I could dismiss or debate with them. But the thing that really drew me in as much or more than anything other than just a longing in my heart and there was this awareness that just continued to creep up on me uh, that I'm missing something and that there's something not there that I couldn't quite put my finger on. But beyond an emotional level or this just this intuitive sense of something bigger and beyond myself that uh, that's not in my life was the fulfillment of prophecies in and through the life of Jesus. In the person of Yeshua, there was there was something incredible about the accuracy. And how did he do that? Now, there were other things, but uh, I can remember the defining moment thinking in my heart and my life, just these two words, I believe. This is true. And once you know that something is real, then then you've got this crisis because you've got to follow through and either deny it and purposefully live, you know, in, in darkness, purposefully live in contradiction to what you know in your heart and your mind is the real thing, or you've got to fall in. You know, you've got to surrender and abandon yourself and give yourself to that truth. And that was the moment uh, for me. It seems like in my life and maybe in your life and certainly in, in what we're going to look at today that waiting on God is always a big part of our experience. Especially in the middle of pain or in the middle of disappointment. It can be just waiting on Him. One of the hardest exercises of Christian faith that I know. When you can see on the other side, or at least you've got hope about something, but you're on this side of things. And that's, that's nowhere played out in such a dramatic way than in these most momentous 72 hours of human history. Jesus' death, his burial, and his resurrection. And how out of all the years and the decades and the centuries and the moments of life, those three days changed history in a more profound way 
than any other time. It still impacts us. Three days. Three days. One of the things I've loved about Scripture, and I think I accepted it knowing very little about it. To be honest with you, uh, I found a Bible, and it was a couple of weeks or so after, really, I came to Christ that some people collected money on my behalf and went out and bought me a Bible. And that was my first real deal, kind of a genuine Bible. The other was one I found at my mom's house and, and had been reading. And I think this group I had become attached to said, that guy needs a real Bible. And I had put my faith in a lot of this without really understanding it or studying it. But the, the really cool thing about that is in the years and years since then, everything I've studied and as I've continued to look at this and to invest my life in it, I don't find contradiction. I find it just continues to be true. And I'm not a person to kid myself, okay? I'm not one of those people who are like, you know, I'm just not going to think about that part of it because that causes doubts. I was leaning into the doubts. I mean, I was at this place where I thought, you know what, if this, if this isn't real, I'm, I'm not going to make a fool of myself and give myself to this. And I had these new friends and friends who were saying, it is real. And we're just telling you it's real. And I wanted to believe them. But my other friends, the other part of my life, which was the majority of the people in my life, were saying, there's nothing real about that. It's just stories and it's myths. And it's how can you think that after all these years and all the history and but as I continue to investigate up until this moment, up until now, um, the history and archaeology and the extra biblical sources and everything just keeps, me, keeps bringing me back to the consistency and the accuracy and the truth of this. And I believed it by faith. But I'm just telling you, and I don't know where you are in your journey. I don't know what's going on. But I tell you this, it would be so, it would be impossible for me to go back now and to not believe again. There's just too much evidence and it just keeps stacking up and stacking up. And I hope you figure that out for yourself. You don't have to take my word for it or your mama's word for it or anybody else maybe trying to nudge you into faith, you know, to, to point you back toward Jesus. Because some of the claims and the things I read, and I can remember making fun of my Christian friends. I remember laughing at them, going, "You guys are ridiculous! I can't you just..." And I can remember telling one friend in particular, "I said, can you hear yourself talking? Do you listen to what you just said? Think about it. It's just absurd, you know." And and as I lean into it, thinking that's not quite as ridiculous as I thought it was. It actually is the only legitimate <laughs> intellectual. Uh, reasonable answer to some of these dilemmas. Where I started off with that, I guess, is that the thing I like about the Bible is, and particularly the Gospels and the accounts of Christ, is that the way it reads is not like a story, like a novel or a movie or a book, you know, and you read something really good and, and it has this flow and this... The, the way it's written and it kind of pulls you in. I don't see that here. It reads just like historical accounts read. And to me, that adds to the validity of it because they leave in things that you think, oh, I think I, I would have left that out. Or it leaves out 
things that you think, oh, I kind of wish you'd have put that in. And, and, and then they're just amazingly consistent and flow and sync, you know, these different accounts. And we have these details from the life of Jesus. Even before he was born, all these scriptures pointing to Messiah. And I know some that uh, some places in scripture that are considered to be messianic prophecies, and you read them and you think, that's eh, a little vague. I have found 133 that are dead on specific, no wiggle room, this is the way it's going to be. And so many of those about Jesus are so far beyond his control. Things that he couldn't do, you know, what's going to happen during his death and after his death. He can't manipulate that, where he's going to be born, when he's going to be born, the circumstances surrounding that, all of these things, where he's going to be, you know, the things his parents are going to do ahead of him. It's like, how in the world? That's just, it's literally, mathematically impossible. Something tells me these, these are stories. And, 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 and as it goes forward, you know, there's these gaps that you think, wow, I wish we kind of knew what he was up to during his teenage years or, you know, as a young man. What was, what was going on with him? And it's just kind of like, well, we're kind of quiet about that. And then there's these, these accounts, particularly in the last days of his life. We, we see specifically what he was doing and the people around him, both his enemies and his friends and his followers and direct quotes of things that he said. It's kind of amazing. And that leads us through his arrest and this, this trial, you know, where they go back and forth because the Romans were in control and they had the ultimate authority. But in, in their wisdom, they knew that if they didn't allow the Jewish people to continue their customs and their traditions and their laws that were not inconsistent or threatening in any way to the, the Roman authority, that they're going to have insurrection on their hands. So they, they let them do that. They said, okay, we're going to let you do that. But here are some limits to it. For instance, one is that you can't pronounce the death penalty. You can do these other punishments and you can continue to live the way you've lived. We don't really care about that so much. But at the end of the day, here's some things that, um, that we're in control of. So in order to crucify Jesus, they had to figure out how do we get there and how do we get this approval. And, and so there's that part of this historical account, this, this story of Jesus where he's arrested and he's taken back and forth and he's punished. And, and then there's even the offer to release him. You know, I think we've punished this guy. He doesn't seem to be that threatening. He's not that, you know, we're willing to let him go. Well, how about you? But by this time, the crowd had turned and had become a mom. And fueled by the most religious people on the scene, they crucify Jesus. This horrible, barbaric, this horrific, torturous way of death. And then he's buried. And then this, this short time goes by. And he's alive. The disciples, this is what's kind of 
steered my thinking in the last few days. They were just in hopeless darkness between the days of, you know, the day of the cross when Jesus is crucified and, and the empty tomb. But when Resurrection Sunday dawned, they found new courage and, and hope based on Jesus' victory. Something they themselves weren't even expecting. And folks, I think when we're tempted to despair, and I know that some of you are in pain, you're in a place of disappointment or confusion or darkness, you can have hope. And this is the big idea of the message today, that you can have hope in God's faithfulness and in the power of Christ's resurrected life in us. All of the accounts are fascinating, but I've kind of camped out in John chapter 19 uh, in his account, John's perspective of this. And in chapter 19, verse, verse 28, it says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. He's, st- he's still fulfilling prophecies up to the last moment. We'll, we'll look at that again in just a second. But uh, I, was, I was interested in this word. He, Jesus said it's, it, he sees that it's finished. He understands that it's come to a conclusion. So I looked that word up, teleo, and it, it, it's really kind of interesting because when I think of something being finished, you think, ah, we're done. You know, we're just finished. And there's this, uh, oh, I'm so glad that's over. Maybe get done I don't know, working in your yard or some task or, you know, I don't like to paint anything. My wife's really good at it, but I just think, no, don't make me paint walls or anything. And when you're done, you just got this, oh, my goodness, that's finished. I'm so glad. This doesn't quite carry that. This has got sort of a different intent and direction that it goes. It means to complete something, to conclude it, to, to carry out, to finish, to mark as paid. To fulfill. I've seen churches sometimes pay off their property and uh, under God's grace and blessing and, and those who've gone before us, we don't have a note and that has just been just a really, really good thing for us. But maybe you've been part of a church or even in your home where you paid off your mortgage or you paid off your car note and you remember holding that last payment, you remember sending that in and you just think, oh... And some, some places will burn that last one. You know, they'll make a ceremony because it's such a good thing. It's a moment of celebration. That is the word that Jesus uses here. It's finished. Check. It's done. So he says it there. And then if you go forward to verse 30, it says, When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said what he knew in his heart, what he knew and was thinking now he's, he proclaims it out loud. He says, it is finished. It is finished. It's done. My work is over. And he bowed his head and he gave up his spirit. I love the fact that Jesus is fulfilling prophecies right up to the last moment of his life. This one last prophecy, and it's from Psalm 69, 21. He checks off with the, the last breaths of his life as he's dying. 
I've thought about how if Jesus is still in complete awareness and control at this last possible moment, enduring such torture and this brutal death, don't you know that he is in control of your worst moments too? If he's in control at that moment, when most people at that time were out of their minds, maybe you've been in a painful situation, you know, maybe you've been sick or you've, I don't know, had a baby (laughs) or, you know, been injured in an accident and the pain is just so overwhelming and you can't think and you can't focus or maybe an emotional pain where you just feel paralyzed and you can't go forward and you can't make a decision, you don't know what to do next. Jesus, in this awful, awful place, is still so aware and in control. He can do that. He can be that for you. And you may be out of control. And you may think, I don't know. I can't think and I can't do anything but feel this pain. Jesus is still in control. So you can keep trusting him. And you can keep allowing him to be who he is. Don't doubt him now. Not now. You may be so close to a victory and so close to a resurrection that you can't see, but he can. So don't stop trusting him now. Verse 33 says, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the uh, soldiers pierced his side with a spear. Death. They see that Jesus is dead. And what they were doing, and there's this, this rush, there's this uh, pressure to get everything done before the sun goes down, before it is, because it's the day of preparation, and, and that they have to get everybody you know, off those crosses and all of this finished before the end of the day. And so what they would do is literally break the legs because a victim of, of crucifixion the only way they could continue to, to live, or how they sustain themselves for several hours, which you just think about excruciating, how, you know, how awful that was, is that they would, they would push themselves up to take a breath because their hands are you know, like this, and after a while they just couldn't breathe. And most of them died. You know, the cause of death would have been suffocation or a heart attack, the heart just bursting because they just couldn't get oxygen. They couldn't get air anymore. And so they kept, you know, they would push up. So they break their legs and they can't do that. And then they, and they just die a little more quickly. And they get to Jesus and these professional soldiers who had seen death time and time and time and time again. This is what they did. They were professionals. We think that guy's dead. So they thrust this spear in, and out of the wound comes water and blood together. And they knew that he's dead. Jesus was dead. What is, what is death? Death is to, to no longer be in one's present existence. To die. To end a life that, is, that has been. I'm just a pastor. You know, I'm just a guy. But I've been with several people in their last moments. I've had the opportunity to watch people die. My mother-in-law was the most beautiful 
my father. I've been with some of you in hospital rooms when we've said goodbye. I recognize death. Everyone surrounding this moment and that cross knew that Jesus' life had come to an end. And with his death, all of his followers, their hopes and their dreams and their beliefs and everything about their future and what they thought died with Jesus on the cross. But that wasn't the end of things, even though it must have felt like it to them. Years and years ago, uh, Kathy and I were at Union University in Jackson, Tennessee, and we had such a great experience there. And one of the things that we really enjoyed is that the Dean of Religion was amazing at getting like who's who speakers. And we got to hear some of the most famous sermons uh, of that era. We heard R.G. Lee preach Payday Someday uh, that he had probably done a thousand times. One of the guys we enjoyed the most was the pastor uh, in a church in Los Angeles. His name was S.M. Lockridge. And he's just one of our favorites. And he had a famous, he had two famous sermons. We got to hear them both. But in one, there's a little section that I wanted you to hear. It may be familiar with some of you, but I wanted you to hear what he had to say about that day, about that Friday. It's Friday. Jesus is praying. Peter's asleep. Judas is betraying, but Sunday's coming. It's Friday. Pilate's struggling. The council is conspiring. The crowd is vilifying. They don't even know that Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are running like sheep without a shepherd. Mary's crying. Peter is denying. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. The Romans beat my Jesus. They robe him in scars. They crown him with thorns. But they don't know that Sundays are coming. It's Friday. See Jesus walking to Calvary. His blood dripping. His body stumbling and his spirit's burden. But you see, it's only Friday. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The world's winning. People are sinning. And evil's grinning. It's Friday. The soldiers nailed my Savior's hands to the cross. They nailed my Savior's feet to the cross. And then they raised him up next to criminals. It's Friday. But let me tell you something. Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The disciples are questioning what has happened to their king. And the Pharisees are celebrating that their scheming has been achieved. But they don't know. It's only Friday. Sunday's coming. 
It's Friday. He's hanging on the cross, feeling forsaken by his father, left alone and dying. Can nobody save him? Oh, it's Friday. But Sunday's coming. It's Friday. The earth trembles. The sky grows dark. My king yields his spirit. It's Friday. Hope is lost. Death has won. Sin has conquered. And Satan just a laugh. It's Friday. Jesus is buried. A soldier stands God. And a rock is rolled into place. But it's Friday. It is only Friday. Sunday is a coming. After Jesus was crucified, they took him down, which was more common. It's, it's awful for us to even try to imagine it, but in that day, it was not so unusual. And for someone who'd been condemned, they would take these their body and they would just throw it literally on a rubbish heap, but just on a trash heap. They would just throw the body away. It was with, without honor. Oftentimes. But this circumstance was different. This is the Jewish day of preparation. It's mentioned several times in Scripture. For instance, in, in John 19, uh, 14, it says, uh, Now, it was the day of preparation of the Passover, and it was about the sixth hour. In verse 31, it says, Since it was the day of preparation... And so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. And then in verse 42, it says, So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. You may not have noticed that as you've read through Scripture. You think, oh, they keep coming back to that idea of this is kind of important uh, because it's a day of preparation. This Friday was special because it preceded not just any Sabbath Saturday, but because it was Passover Sabbath Saturday. And there was this hurry, this, this, kind of this pressure to get everything done and the crucifixion over with by the end of the day because it's the day of preparation. And maybe you felt that way, you know, the, the, the week before final exams or, you know, the week before your vacation. Uh, you know that people say that your most productive day of the year is the day before you leave for vacation. You know, and how you just you just all over the place, and oh, we got to go by, and we got to pick up this, and I got this, and I got to sign this contract, and I got to sign, you know, and, and you just get so much done, and and, all, and then after that, you know, it just changes, and there's this stark contrast between this day and that day. That's kind of the way it was here. There's this this day to get everything done, but then that next day, that Saturday. It's just silent. 
chapter 20, verse 1 says it was the first day of the week was coming. That was Sunday. So, you know, you have to remember so that, that the Saturday following Jesus' death is almost completely silent. I don't know if I'd really thought about this a lot, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John have almost nothing to say about Saturday. Now, we know where Jesus was, what he was doing, specific quotes, I mean, things he had said for days leading up to this moment. We, we have so much information from Scripture, and there's even evidence from outside of Scripture that, that, that just that correlates that. And we think, okay, we know everything. And you get up to this Saturday, and it's nothing. There's no mention. We don't know where the disciples were. We don't know what the enemies were doing. Jesus is dead in the tomb. It just goes quiet. It goes blank. The only exception that I could find was Matthew. Matthew mentions activity on the, on, on the Saturday, but here's how brief he, he just says that the Roman and Jewish leaders decide to seal and guard the tomb, uh, the stone at the tomb to make sure that none of the disciples are going to come in and rob the grave and make up some lie about Jesus becoming alive again, you know, and, and, and per perpetuate this hoax, which they actually didn't have a lot to worry about because the disciples were nowhere to be found. Before this, during this, and even after this event, they're some of the hardest people to convince that Jesus is alive. They've, they're done. They're just trying to get out of this alive. So they weren't about to come up with some, like a plot to a movie, you know, where they're, they're going to, you know, oh, we're going to steal the body and we're going to do this. And you think, okay, that's maybe like 007 or, you know, something like that. But it's, no. Real life, they're just hiding out because they're scared to death and they're disappointed and they're broken. What a dark day that Saturday must have been for Jesus' followers. And what a feeling of victory and, and power it must have been for the enemies of God because they believed finally this ultimate solution worked. We've won, it's over, it's done. Dead Jesus is inside a sealed and guarded tomb, and we don't have to think about that and worry about it anymore. Ah, we can go forward now, and that's the end of that. I thought this week, what, what must have been going through the minds of the disciples? What were they thinking? We know for certain they were not anticipating or expecting a resurrection. That was like the last thing that, that what do you think is going to happen next? Nobody would have given that answer. They, they were clueless. In John chapter 20, verse 9, it says, For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. They, just, they still could not wrap their minds around that. They were clueless about that. Even when people saw it and kept telling them, we saw Jesus alive. And not just one or two people. You know, if you go to court and you go, well, we've got two eyewitnesses that saw what happened, that's pretty strong, right? I mean, if you show up and say, well, yeah, I've got, I've got three witnesses, they're going to be hundreds of people. I mean, there's, it's just like person after person that affirms, yeah, that's what, yeah, we saw this. The disciples were having a hard time believing it. 
And we know from the different gospel accounts that some of them, like for instance in this next verse, in, in verse 10, chapter 20, it says, Then the disciples went back to their homes. It was all over. So they just went back home. Some of them in John 21 verse 3 says they actually went back to their old professions. Uh, it says Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we'll go with you. And they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. He said everybody back to work. Show's over. Nothing to see here. Move along. I wonder if I can get my old job back. That was the mood. And that's what was happening. Billy Graham said this, If our faith is weak, it may not be obvious when life is going smoothly and we aren't challenged in any way. But when hard times come, a weak faith will be revealed for what it really is. Shallow and unable to help us through life's difficulties. It may be anything, an unexpected illness, the death of a loved one, the loss of our job, even a friend who turns against us. But when hard times happen, the true nature of our faith will be revealed. We see this played out in a hundred ways every day, and we don't even think about it. There are these word pictures and these metaphors of what is happening and what happens in us. Almost every day... um, I have one of the, I don't know what you call this, I call it a cutie. You call it, is that what you say? I'm so aware of everything. But I have one of these almost every day. I, I kind of got hooked on them not long ago, and I ate one of those. Another thing I, I like, this you're probably more aware of, and this one's getting pretty ripe, is a banana. It's really common, has a lot of what, potassium? Is that what's in them? And, and I have one of those every day. And then, something else I eat every day that you think, so far, yeah, me too, are uh, pistachios. You like pistachios? My grandson, I kind of got him hooked on them, and I keep them in my office. And every Sunday after worship, we go up to my office. It's become this little tradition that we do. And he gets pistachios, and he sits at my desk, and he cracks them open and sits there and eats them. And then I try to put some in a baggie so that we can get out of here and get to beat you to the restaurant and, you know, and get a table. Um, but I eat pistachios every day. And you know, the thing that these, that these have in common, along with all the other foods that we eat, is that the good stuff's on the inside, right? And this is so brilliant how God, you know, created the packaging for our food. You don't need anything else. I don't have to wrap this in tinfoil. I don't have to put this in plastic. He designed the covering for it. I thought, that is so genius. But to get to it, I have to destroy this outside. Especially this cutie. I mean, you kind of got to dig in here with your fingernail or a knife or something, and then you just mangle it. You know, you just tear it to pieces to get on the inside. And then this is going to be irreparable. Once you break that and you peel that off, then that's pretty done. And these pistachios, you know, you crack those open and then it's, you can get to the inside. And we get that in the physical world. And we get the fact that everything we eat has to die in order to give us life. 
We understand the sacrifice that takes place and this breaking of the outer to get to the inner. And that's what God's doing in, with us. And I know that some of you this morning, you're, you feel like that. You feel like you're being twisted, you know, that you're being crushed, that you're being torn open, that you're waiting between a rock and a hard place for God to show up. Here's what will happen. Whatever's on the inside of you will come out on, and be displayed on the outside. But God will have to break you open. He will have to crush that part of you that's keeping him from being exposed and from this life flowing and emerging. In Luke's gospel, the angels asked the ladies this question. They said, why do you look for the living among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. He's risen. Sometimes in darkness and in hard places, we forget that. We forget the extraordinary, incredible power that it took to bring someone who'd been dead for three days back to life. And we think, well, my circumstance is kind of hard. You don't understand. What I'm going through is really, really difficult. And God, I think you could do all that, but I don't think you can fix me. I don't think you can, you can help with this. Here's the principle that I'm learning again and again. In Galatians 2.20, Paul said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet, not I, but it's Christ who lives in me. And the thing about that verb tense is he says, you know, I'm not just like I died once, maybe when you were 11 years old or 12 years old or 14 or 22. And you think, yeah, I was crucified with Christ and I, I understood and I came to that. No, it, it's, it's written in a tense that says, I have died with Christ and I continue to die today and tomorrow and the next day. And I continue to die and to release this old life so that the new life, so that Jesus can live in and through me. It was never God's design or his idea for you to submit yourself to a religious system. For you to look at scripture and look at the life of Jesus and to say, I would like to buy into that. And so I will mimic you and I will just do the things you did and I'll try to live the best I can. And I think a lot of people, and we call ourselves Christians, we kind of get the idea that that's what it's about. Well, I'll go to church and I'll stop doing this and I'll start doing that and... And, you know, I'll kind of straighten myself up. And we get the idea that that's following Jesus. That's really not it. You see the death that Jesus died of crucifixion. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's dying that spiritual death to myself so that Jesus can come alive and live in and through me. That's what our faith is about. So what do we do even when we're going through tough circumstances? Kathy and I spent some time with a friend yesterday and shared communion with a friend who has cancer. But who, through tears, can share this this hope that they have and this incredible confidence in Jesus. They've always been a Christian and always loved the Lord, but there's something new and fresh and different and deeper and stronger and bigger happening. It always happens like that. So what about you? What about me? 
Will we go back to what we were doing before we met Jesus like the disciples did? Will we curse God and abandon our faith altogether? Will we go back to what's familiar because it's comfortable and safe and we understand that even though we know that's wrong and that's, that's not who we are anymore? Or will we keep pressing in to God even through the silence, even in the discomfort, even in the pain, and keep seeking Him with all of our hearts? Tim Keller is a Presbyterian pastor, and uh, I admire a lot of things about him. He wrote this little book called The Songs of Jesus, and here's something he said on Psalm 130. He said, Waiting for God's mercy may seem hopeless, like a sleepless person longing for morning. Been there, haven't you? Which never seems to come to an end. But here's the gospel. He himself will redeem Israel from all of their sins. Jesus is God himself dying to save his people from their sins. God's forgiveness and mercy generates a joyful fear and a wonder that empowers our lives. Morning has broken. You just can't see it yet. I grew up in West Tennessee, and you could see sunrises, and you could see sunsets, uh, because it was pretty flat, and you know, you could, you could just, anywhere you were, you could see a sunset. We don't get to see them in our house, because we're in kind of this little low place, and I have to climb to the top of a hill to be able to see it, but it doesn't mean it's not happening. And it may feel dark, and it may feel a lot like that Saturday, where it's just silent, but morning's coming. The light will be there. One of the speakers we've had here at Calvary years ago was just a delightful lady, one of the most godly women you'd ever want to meet. Her name was Elizabeth Elliot, and she said this, Of one thing I'm perfectly sure, God's story never ends with ashes. So there was this Friday with this crucifixion, and there was this quiet Saturday where everyone abandoned hope and then came Sunday. Now there's no doubt that the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross on Friday and buried before sunset, as just as the New Testament gospel tells us. Uh, it was in compliance with Roman law. And they allowed Joseph of Arimathea, who had requested permission to take custody of the body of Jesus, he wanted to bury that. He, he was kind of scared about everything because he was way he was a high-ranking religious guy and he knew what his friends were going to think and he could lose his position and his prestige and status in his community and in the village there. And he, you know, he said, I'm going to be kind of quiet about this, but could I have the body? And they granted him to do that. However, the body was not placed in the family tomb or another tomb. Uh, any kind of a place of honor because Jewish law didn't permit that. But it did permit and it was placed in a tomb that scripture tells us in Matthew 27, not yet in use. It was rougher and hadn't been used yet and that was okay. And even this was an extravagant act of mercy and generosity on the part of Joseph. And the gospel narratives are really consistent with everything we can find. Any relevant ancient literature, archaeological data, both Jewish and Roman law of the time, Palestinian 
writings elsewhere in the empire. Everything we can find just flows right in sync with this, that the body of Jesus was taken down from the cross. It was put in this known tomb, this known tomb, under the direction of someone who's acting on behalf of the Jewish Sanhedrin. I accept this as historical. And it's so much easier. You don't have to jump through hoops and make up a lot of fanciful stories if you just read it for what it is and say, that kind of makes sense and it's really reasonable. So when I see that flow and all that happened, then I get to this place on Sunday morning where these women are all coming back to the tomb. And the question I think is, why did they do that? Why did these women visit Jesus' tomb? If the body of Jesus had received a proper burial, you know, on Friday afternoon and that was done and they had to get everything finished, then why Sunday morning did they come back? The Gospels tell us in both uh, Mark and in Luke that the women brought spices with them. Why are they doing this? Well, this is because of the Jewish custom of visiting the tomb of the recently deceased every day for one week following their death. It was a primary burial. There was like this first funeral, but then it would unfold. You know, and today we have customs. You know, we did a little differently where I come from than we do here. You know, where someone dies and you have like the receiving of friends. And then you have the funeral. And then you have the graveside service. And we understand that. And that's not unusual to us, right? We think, yeah, well, that's kind of the way we do things here. I've been to other countries and other places and they do it differently. Well, the way they did it was they would have this initial service. And then for every day they would visit the tomb. So it wasn't unusual that these ladies were coming back. And they brought with them these spices because they didn't have the embalming techniques that we have. And so this would help perfume and mask the unpleasant odor. And then what would happen is that one year later, as prescribed by Jewish custom, family members gathered the skeletal remains and placed them in this niche or a little box called an ossuary. And we have seven of those that we know of with the name Jesus on them because it was a fairly common name, actually. And so then they would put those there. Uh, they would even wait for someone who had been condemned, like a criminal. They would wait a year because it would be thought that as the flesh had decomposed and wasted away, that so whatever they did wasted away too. That it took a year, but their sins were gone and just their bones left, so then they could be buried and taken back to the family tomb and given a little better burial. But that's the way they, they did that. And even what had been shame, you know, and all of that, it removed the stain of guilt. So according to the Gospel of Matthew, the, the tomb of Jesus is sealed. And it's made clear that his body could not be removed and it couldn't be placed anywhere else. And tampering with tombs was a really serious offense. And charges would be made from the highest levels of government. But visiting of the tomb was allowed, even for an executed criminal. And you, were, you could weep quietly and you could go inside. And that's what the women had planned to do. And they even thought out loud on the way, what are we going to do when we get there? How are we going to move that stone? We can't do that. We're not strong enough. There's not enough of us. Uh, and as it turns out, all of that was for nothing. Because when they arrive at the place of burial, they find that the stone had already been rolled away and that there's no body of Jesus there to anoint. There would be no 
one week of private, quiet mourning. What had happened? It's probable that they assumed that the body of Jesus had been removed by the Jewish authorities. They probably found some loophole or on the grounds that, well, this body shouldn't be placed in this tomb, and, you know, we're going to move it, and because of the, you know, it's been executed, and it shouldn't be here in this kind of a place, and all of that would be denied. You know, what person, even when the ladies saw inside the tomb, even when Peter and John would see inside, they still didn't believe in resurrection. You know what convinced them? It wasn't the empty tomb. It was when they saw Jesus. That's when they finally got it. That's what persuaded these women is that soon after, you know, and these other disciples would believe that Jesus had in fact been raised from the dead, not because of the empty tomb, but because of the appearance of Jesus. It was the appearance of Jesus in their life where they understood all the other things. And it became possible then to speak of something they had dared not even dream or hope for. It's called resurrection. The appearance of Jesus, not only to the disciples and the supporters and the friends, but even people who didn't believe and didn't want to believe who saw Jesus, offers this strong evidence that he was raised from the dead and that this Easter proclamation of ours was not a hoax or some urban legend. No, it had a very reasonable conclusion that the resurrection of Jesus, which includes the story of his death and his burial, and then his resurrection is completely consistent with all known evidence. And it makes very good sense. It's exactly what the four narratives tell us happened. We believe when we see Jesus. And that's when I believed. And that's when I believe now. It's when I see. And I feel and I hear. And I walk through moments that cannot be explained other than the presence of Christ in my life. And he loves you so much. And he longs for you to know him and the power of his resurrection. I told you in the beginning that this is a special day. I have a friend, John, who lives at the beach. And he said, I walked on the beach today. He said, and I remembered 11 years ago when I came to Christ. And I had this awakening. And I said, I'm here in the mountains of East Tennessee. And I'm thinking about mine too. I'd love to share this day with you. I'd love for this to become your anniversary when you come to Jesus and see him begin to live and move and just explode in your life and his power and his love. And if you're at a dark place, even better. Father, thank you for today. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for the cross. Thank you. Thank you for the resurrection. It is our hope and it is our life. In Jesus' name we give you praise.
Would you stand?